Hey friends, and welcome to This Good Word. My name is Steve Weens, your host, as always, and we are, we are, I don't know who we is, I am. Uh, I'm doing a, a kind of a four-part series on reconstructing your faith. I'm calling it Surviving Your Own Copernican Shift. This is part three, and so far we've talked about how the unexpected thing is usually the transformative thing. When a disruption happens in your life, whether it be uh, a major loss, some pain, uh, a, a huge question in your faith that forces you to rethink everything, uh, you can either resist that and keep living life as usual, uh, or you can pursue that disruption and let it be an invitation into expanding and broadening your way of thinking. I kind of likened it to when Copernicus in the 1500s discovered that the earth wasn't the fixed center of the universe at all. It was just one of several planets that was navigating around the sun, orbiting around the sun, and that we aren't the center of any, of any universe either. <laughs> And this moment where a disruption becomes an invitation is kind of like the moment where you realize, uh, like imagine that you were somehow, some way living inside of a snow globe and you didn't know it. And you wondered why it snowed every day and you wondered why your little town um, was the way it was and why it didn't change. And then all of a sudden, you, something happened, maybe the snow globe cracked, or you somehow were able to see a different perspective and see that life is so much bigger than the little snow globe. If you were to get outside of it and just hold it in your hand, you could examine it and you could say, oh, well, that's why there was only seven trees in my world. I didn't even know uh, that there were more than seven trees in the whole universe. I know it's such a silly example, but in another way, I think it can be profound when you realize like your own belief system in a certain way is a kind of snow globe and everything is the way it is and the way it should be and nothing ever changes uh, if you never get outside of it and look at it and hold it and shake it and notice that there is a bigger world outside of it. And so that's your invitation when you have major theological questions like, how can I trust the Bible when it has so many contradictions in it? Or is there really a good God when so many bad things happen? If you keep thinking the way you've always thought, if you, keep, if you try to solve those problems based on the, the same kind of inside your snow globe thinking, uh, then you'll actually never you'll never transcend that way of thinking. Like you can't actually start learning a different way of thinking, a different way of seeing the world using the same set of uh, thoughts and logic and seeing the Bible the same way you always have or seeing Christianity the same way you always have. You actually have to get a different perspective. You have to get a different education into what the world is, who you are, who God is. And so that's part three, uh, this word education. And uh, so if disruption leads to invitation, eventually that leads to life outside of the snow globe, which is an education in seeing the world differently. 
So what I want to do in this episode is I want to walk you through um, the episodes in my life where I lost faith and then found God again, and then what it was that helped me to uh, find God again and what it was that I needed in terms of an education that helped me see the world differently. So I grew up going to church. I mean, I went, we, we really honestly, I grew up in Southern California in the 1970s and we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I mean, we were at church a lot. That was just my world. And, um, all of my parents' friends went to that church. That was sort of our snow globe. It was that church. And I, I have actually a lot of good memories at this church. Um, some of my best friends went to that church as well. And I was actually, I, I was, one of my best friends was the pastor's son. I remember spending a lot of time at his house. And then one day, I, was, I think I was nine or 10, I woke up on a Sunday morning and my parents pulled me and my sister together. Uh, my younger sister was, was too little at the time, but I would have been nine or 10. My older sister would have been 11 or 12 maybe. And they said that, that we were going to hear an announcement at church that day that our pastor was no longer going to be our pastor. And the story that we were told by my parents is that he there was a police officer that was an undercover prostitute and that undercover prostitute solicited the pastor. And the story we were told is that the pastor agreed to meet her later, but was never going to do it. Um, but then he got arrested. Uh, and that was the story we were told. And we didn't really, we were shocked. Of course we, we didn't, I mean, did we know what a, prostitute was. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, but we were, everything changed at that point. The church changed. Um, and I don't really remember exactly how it was all handled, but I remember that things changed after that. I was less interested in church. And so by the time I got to be 13 years old, our family moved from Southern California to Waterloo, Belgium in Europe. And it was this new start for me. And I remember at school for some reason, um, I started, it, it was like, because I think I left the snow globe of, you know, that church and all my friends and that closed system. And I was now in a, a school that had, it was English speaking, but you know, kids in my class of like 50 people, there was probably 30 nationalities. So one of my best friends uh, was South African. Um, I had many British friends, some Belgian friends, some American friends. It was very eclectic and diverse. And so I, I started to say, Jesus Christ, a lot. Like every time something happened, you know, in which I might use a different word like, wow, or well, that's weird. I just, Jesus Christ. And I said it so often that one of my friends, she was a, uh, one of my girlfriends uh, said, wow, you, you really like to say that. <laughs> and as I was looking back on it, I think I needed some way to differentiate from the snow globe, you know, because I would have never been allowed to say that in my snow globe system back at my church in Southern California. Never. I mean, 
my friends would have looked at me like I was crazy. I just would have never done it. And so there was something in me that needed that needed to have a reference point that meant that I really was outside of the snow globe, that I, I, I was different than I used to be. Now, I never, you know, from the time that I was born through about 21, I never rejected my Christian upbringing. I never outwardly said, mm, I'm done with that. And so uh, I think that's just one of the markers. Like, what are those times? Like, can you remember a time where you had to say something and do something different to differentiate yourself from that system that you grew up in as a way of saying, nah, I'm not part of that anymore. So, you know, the next kind of chapter in my life where there was a major change, I was 21 years old and I'd been at three years of college. I had one more year left and I love my college experience. I partied a ton uh, and I just had a blast. I had so much fun in college, but I also the summer after my junior year, I felt like I needed something different. I actually felt physically kind of tired from, I think, just a lot of partying. <laughs> and so I, I, don't, I don't remember, like, did I pray about this? I don't think I did, but I felt a desire to, to work at a Christian camp. I'd always gone to a certain camp in California growing up that I loved. And so maybe I was trying to sort of reconnect with my roots in a way that, that, that I was hungry for something uh, that I didn't even know. So I, I decided to work at this Christian camp, 21 years old, in between my junior and senior year of college. And during one of the staff trainings, we experienced the Eucharist. And I had a mystical experience. I mean, I really did. It was, it was beautiful and mysterious. And I, to this day, I don't really know what happened, but essentially when I was taking the Eucharist, I felt an overwhelming sense of God's presence in a way that, um, was bodily. Like, I mean, I felt it in my body is what I mean by that to the point where I wept uncontrollably and loudly in front of everybody. I mean, there's maybe a hundred people, uh, of whom I didn't really know anyone very well. I'd only been there about a week and I was just, I mean, snots flying everywhere. And I felt a, a very intense and real um, sense that God liked me. And I, I had grown up with the theology that God loved me for sure, because God sort of had to, and all the, you know, just all the theology around Jesus died for your sin and, um, and all that that means and asking Jesus into my heart to save me. And I did that a bunch of different times. And, uh, and, but this was the first time that I felt a real sense like deep in my body, uh, in a way that is still to this day, hard to describe. This is 28 years ago, but I felt the affection, uh, of whoever God is, whatever God is, I felt a deep sense of affection. And that literally, actually, literally did change everything. I, um, I began, um, I just, I, I think something woke up in me at that point and I knew that I, I wanted a connection with this God. And so, I mean, I went back to college and I really, I think I didn't know, I didn't know 
how to do my life anymore. And so I definitely still hung out with my friends, but they could tell something had changed. I didn't really know how to explain it. I still went to parties, but didn't really drink much anymore because I felt like if I did that, I would some that that experience that I had would somehow be nullified because <laughs> I didn't have anyone to help walk me through that experience. I was 21. So all of a sudden, but kind of became a black and white thinker. Like it was my first real time of experiencing anything close to uh, something personal and real as it related to God. And, and I was desperately afraid I would lose it. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like that before, but I, I was desperately afraid it was all just going to, going to evaporate if I, you know, was kind of my normal self, which would have been, you know, going to parties and drinking and blah, blah, blah. And, um, so that was a very awkward year, but this, this desire for connection grew and I decided to go to grad school. I wanted to be in ministry, quote unquote, for those of you that maybe didn't grow up in the church, what that essentially means is that I wanted, I, I felt a call to be a pastor, to minister to people. And I'm laughing just because that's, I don't know what other language to use. And it sort of sounds very funny and quaint to me right now as a 20, you know, one, 22, 23 year old. But that's what I did. I went to grad school and I got involved in this church leading some high school kids and I actually loved it. So I felt like, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to do. And then, um, my, when I was almost done with grad school, I went back and worked one more summer. I worked three summers at this camp and I met this woman named Mary who ended up being my wife. And I was immediately drawn to her, immediately attracted to her. Uh, she was gorgeous and super thoughtful and intelligent. And we started going on runs together and she was very, um, she was in the middle of a deconstruction where she had stripped everything down. She grew up in a church just like mine, but she had experienced a lot of like, uh, she was in the kind of church that didn't let her lead beyond a certain level because she was a woman. Like they believed that women, uh, you know, maybe could teach Sunday school, but certainly couldn't lead other men and couldn't preach to other men. And she had that theology was deeply hurtful to her, obviously, because she's a gifted teacher. And uh, so she was, she had deconstructed that belief and now believed that women could lead, preach, teach, no matter what. That's what the Bible said. If the Bible, uh, people had misinterpreted the Bible when they had read that it, you know, women couldn't lead and teach and preach. And so we began to talk about that. And the, the honest truth is that I, I was 23, 24, remember just two or three years into kind of life in the church. And I'd never really thought that through. Like I, I never examined that. I, I grew up inheriting my snow globe, uh, world in my snow globe world growing up, there weren't women preachers, there weren't women elders. And so, but I didn't, I hadn't yet questioned that. And so when Mary and I would talk about that, and again, I was in a pretty black and white stage of thinking at that time, because I think I was afraid everything would evaporate if I didn't follow the rules just right. Uh, and that played out in a number of different ways. Uh, we kind of had to go round and round on that one. And I thought, oh man, I don't know if I can trust this woman because she's pretty liberal, quote unquote. 
<laughs> oh gosh. And so I needed, and I saw I was in another kind of snow globe, right? I had traded one snow globe for another. And finally, after talking it through enough, I started to explore. And so I went to some churches and heard some women preachers. And I was like, wow, they're actually really amazing. And then I listened to some really, really good teaching on how maybe the Bible really didn't say what we thought it said about that women couldn't teach or couldn't preach. And and I experienced women leading me in different ways in the church that made me change my mind about what I thought that the Bible said about women. And that was, gosh, 25 years ago. And so for 25 years, for sure, um, I firmly believed in you know, men and women teaching, leading, preaching together. It's about calling, not gender. And that just seems like such an obvious thing to me now. Like I can't even, I can't even imagine being in an environment in a church where women couldn't preach or lead. That just sounds like, that sounds ridiculous to me. Um, but it, but it, it, at one point in my life, I need to remember, I'm not sure that I would have said it sounded ridiculous to me what Mary was saying that women could teach and lead and preach, but I wasn't there yet. I hadn't received, you know, that was a disruption for me. And the invitation was, can I see the world differently? Can I climb outside of my snow globe? And I did, but it took different books and different experiences, different relationships for me to get a different education. Right. And so then, uh, sort of the next chapter in my life where I feel like I experienced a, uh, somewhat of a big time change is I, I became a youth pastor. So I, I would work with high school kids and middle school kids. And I remember one Sunday night I was doing some preaching, you know, to my 50 or 60 high school kids or whatever that was gathered in this warehousey kind of a place, pretty cool environment that we'd built. And, and I was, I was preaching this message about, quote unquote, accepting the gospel, right? And I was saying that uh, it's easy as ABC. Accepting the gospel is easy as ABC. A, accept that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus died for your sin. And C, commit to following Jesus in your life. And if you do that, then that's receiving the gospel. And I remember, so again, I'm 28, 29, uh, maybe 30. And I remember thinking to myself during the message, Okay, during the message, as I'm giving the message, I'm thinking inside my head, that is bullshit. <laughs> I'm really thinking like it's not easy as ABC. And I don't think that that's what the good news is, just making some mental decision about what you mentally and theologically believe. It, it sounded hollow and empty to me. But there I was giving the message. And so I, I think I finished the message. I didn't, I didn't stop myself. I didn't say, well, this is crazy because you're not going to do that in the middle of a talk. At least I wasn't back then. Uh, now I wonder what if I, what if I, what if I would have that, how fun and interesting that would have been. I might've gotten fired probably, but so that led me to a whole other, that was a whole other disruption. Like if that's the gospel, if, if, if the gospel that I would always, I was always taught what receiving the gospel is, is just that it was easy as ABCs. It was just about making a prayer and, and something clicked inside your head. And then now you were going to go to heaven when you died. And that's what you needed to do. And that's really what it was all about. 
Um, but when that disruption happened, that moment of experiencing preaching this matches that, that I realized I didn't really believe that led to an invitation to start learning some different things. And I remember reading authors like Dallas Willard and the divine conspiracy, this book, kind of a huge book, but it, it really, uh, it really reframed, uh, what I thought about what the gospel was and what he said essentially was that that understanding of the gospel that you just pray to receive Jesus in your heart, forgiveness of sins and heaven when you die, he called that the reduced gospel. That was not at all really the robust kingdom of God message that Jesus was teaching. So I began to read authors like uh, Dallas Willard and Brennan Manning and Henry Nowen. I began to have conversations with other pastors who were thinking that way. And it was, I remember it being an exhilarating time. It really was, um, where we were sort of starting to unpack and re-envision what it even meant to be a Christian. And so I realized again, I was in, I had climbed into another snow globe and, and I had to get outside of it to see that that the gospel was much, much bigger than that. The good news, that's not very good news to a lot of people, especially if you weren't born in a place where Christianity was dominant culture, you know, what, and so, um, and so that led me on a long, long path and, um, where I began to say, okay, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus then if it's not just about getting into heaven when you die? And if it's not just about, um, praying a prayer, um, and if it's not just about following the rules, what is it really? And so, um, and, and that was kind of the rest of my thirties sort of reading and doing different, um, experiments with truth. Uh, that great quote there, or the great title of Gandhi's book, experiments with truth. I loved it. And then I would say maybe the next major reconstruction or invitation disruption was, I was maybe, little, I was maybe 40 or 41 and I got invited to study with a Jewish rabbi. Now, not a messianic Jewish rabbi, but a really a Jewish rabbi. And I remember thinking, man, like, what's this going to be like? And I remember being excited, but also I didn't know what to expect. I did expect to see a person with a big white beard. I did. It's so ridiculous. Maybe a black hat. I didn't know much about Judaism at the time. And so when I saw this guy who looked real normal and just had eyes like a Labrador retriever, um, I, in the first time I studied with him and then I studied with him for dozens and dozens of times over the next eight or nine years, um, I experienced an entirely different way of reading the Bible, experiencing the Bible. It was all about questions. He would just sit in a room on the floor usually with 10 or 12 of us, men and women. And we would look at a, a passage of scripture, maybe Exodus 3, when Moses encounters God in the burning bush, or maybe, you know, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, the account of the creation story, or maybe the story of Joseph. It was usually like a lot of stories in Genesis or Exodus uh, in Torah. And what we would do is he would give us a little background, but then he would just start, and he would start reading the scriptures, and then he would stop, and he would just start asking these questions that made your brain hurt, but also over the course of time, like we would study for 
I know this sounds crazy and you're going to think I'm crazy maybe, but we would literally study for a couple of days. Like we would study from maybe 9 a.m. to noon, stop for lunch, and he would always go take a nap. It would start studying again at maybe 2. We would go till 5 or 5.30. Then we would all have dinner together and we would sort of keep talking about it. And then we would go home and then come back the next day and do it all again. So we would do this two days in a row and we would do this maybe, you know, gosh, in different settings, I might do this five or six or seven times in a, in a year. And it, it's so shaped and formed my view of the scriptures and how they were written and, and with hints and contradictions on purpose. And that some of these stories weren't there to fight over whether they were literally true or not, but it, it, they spoke to each other. The stories spoke to each other and revealed things in each other and in our own lives. And after a study session like that, we would all sort of be exhausted, but also exhilarated. We would be sitting there like, and it was, it felt like something generative was happening. Something was being born in us in the moment. And so my entire way of looking at the Bible was changing. It, it it went from, you know, this sort of this book that was obviously God's word and and said some very definitive things uh, that you couldn't really argue with, even if you wanted to, to this collection of stories that we held in such deep reverence, but now we could interrogate them and question them and we could see what, modern day significance, even a very bizarre story in the Bronze Age would have. And we were allowed to ask any and all questions, but it wasn't, we didn't find ourselves, like, like it, it was very, um, these study sessions weren't cerebral. I, I, I'm making them maybe sound cerebral, they weren't. They were very uh, heart center and it just felt like something was coming to bloom, coming in bloom in all of us. And so then it was like I had to, and also this rabbi who was not Christian, but clearly loved God and loved the Bible. I began to say, well, like in my old snow globe, man, that, that guy wasn't one of us. He was one of them, you know? And then, but then pretty soon it was like, clearly, no, whatever us and them is, those are unhelpful categories and whatever, team he's on, I sure hope I'm on, you know, even though we, we don't line up on some pretty huge, you know, theological beliefs, there's something bigger and more expansive than, than we really could, or than, than some theological doctrine would allow. Like it was bigger, it became bigger than that. And so I even had to start to reconstruct and deconstruct this idea of, well, who is in and who's out. And, and frankly, I, I, I lost I lost interest in even, even making, like, I just said, I'm no longer going to care about that. I'm, 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 it's no longer, it never was my job, but, but I think so many Christians think it's their job to figure out who's in and who's out and get the out people in by making them pray a certain prayer. And I just, I just said, I'm done with that. I don't, I'm no longer going to try to figure out in and out at all on the basis of any, anything. It's not my job to do that. It's just, it's my job to be curious. It's my job to learn. It's my job to love. It's my job to um, examine my own thoughts and beliefs. But but it's it's actually my job to 
discern when I'm trapped in the snow globe and try to get outside of it. That's that really became my um, my my way of thinking is that that if God is mystery and if God is limitless and if God is transcendent, uh, then certainly I can keep understanding more and more. Then certainly. Like I will find myself trapped in snow globes because that's the only way that I can understand the world. There, there has to be some system, right? There has to be some way of understanding it or else it's just so slippery. But, but then the work becomes like you're always going to be in a snow globe of some kind. You're going to break out of one and you're going to get right into another one. That's just the way it works. But if we can continually be curious and at least allow ourselves to think oh my gosh, I have to keep breaking out of it. Then we can keep growing and learning. And so this rabbi and these study sessions were such an education. And, um, and then maybe this last, you know, chapter and I'm 49 this year and, and, um, but, but probably the biggest chapter is around LGBTQ inclusion in the church. And, um, and this is a done deal for many, many people, but this is still something that um, many churches are still really, really dealing with. And, and so was I for a long, long time. This idea of um, is the Bible definitive about there's no way that gay marriage is allowed in any way, shape or form. And here are the six or seven verses that seem to prove it. And um I just kind of blindly accepted that I think for a real long time. I never, I never liked that. I don't think, but it's just what was, you know, I just felt like, well, I, I don't know any way of reading the Bible other than what it says. But, but again, like my, my view through these study sessions with the rabbi and this understanding that, you know, really, it, it really is our job to break out of the snow globe. I began to, I began to do some more education that so I, and I met many, many people who were gay and pe people, me as a pastor, like people have always come up to me and said things like, man, I'm really struggling with my faith. And I've just over the years had many people come up to me and say, Hey, I'm gay. I'm Christian. Am I going to hell? And I just would look at them and say, absolutely not. You know, <laughs> you are not. And I would meet, um, people who clearly just were amazing and and loved God, loved people, loved Jesus, loved the Bible, the whole thing, and were gay, and were married to someone of the same gender, and um, all those experiences made me were disruptions that led to invitations that led me to get more education, and so I began to read books. But books weren't enough. I began to study the Bible in a new way, but that wasn't enough. I began to really get into relationships with uh, some transgender friends uh, and other queer folks. And um, so eventually I changed my mind on that one too, that I do not believe that, uh, oh my gosh, that anyone should be excluded from any role in the church based on their orientation or marital status, uh, whether they are gay and married, straight and married, gay and celibate, straight and celibate, that those things shouldn't be what keep you from involvement, participation in the church. That just became something that was... Um, like I, I didn't, 
it, it had to be about something bigger than are you gay or are you straight? Are you celibate or are you in a relationship? There had to be something that was bigger that united us together or else it just like it felt like the ABC's message again. <laughs> like for me to say to someone that, hey, you know, you can come to church, but you just can't lead or you can't um, if you're gay and married or whatever. Um, you can't, there are things you can't do, but you can come and we're going to love you like crazy. You just can't do these things. We can't marry you. We can't, uh, that just became, um, something that I, I just couldn't, I couldn't swallow. I couldn't stomach anymore. Um, and so, you know, like that is an ongoing process for a lot, a lot of people. But I think the reason why I share that now is because, um, when you are going through your own Copernican shift, uh, when you get disrupted and when you get invitations, when you get uh, an opportunity to learn new things, um, you I've said this before, but you, you really need to follow the truth where it goes and ask questions like, is this leading me toward greater love and greater kindness and greater respect and dignity toward people? Is it leading me to expand and understand my own implicit biases? Is it, is it leading me to grow in my love for people, God and self, or is it diminishing my love for people, God and self? Um, these are much more interesting questions for me versus the questions that go along the lines of like, am I right or wrong? Because again, you are in your snow globe. Like there, there's, I'm in a snow globe now, right? That hopefully in a year or two or three or six or 10, I'll, exp I'll break out of that, right? But if I think the minute I think that, nope, this isn't a snow globe, this I am the center of the universe. My belief system is the center of the universe. I know and I get it. And I've arrived at the fixed, you know, theological belief system that is absolutely correct. I think that's when things start to erode, actually. I think that's when things start to decay. And you just get trapped in that snow globe. Now, does that mean there's nothing that's solid and firm? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It just means that my interpretation on six or seven verses, uh, certainly that just isn't a big enough thing to hold someone together and to lead someone into an expansive faith. Um, so, uh, gang, that was 35 minutes <laughs> of my story. And I don't know if I've ever on this podcast, I don't think I've ever really shared the whole thing like that before. Uh, my fear was, and maybe it was, it was like, Oh my gosh, the most boring podcast ever, just an autobiography of a, a pastor's life. But what I hope it did was give you permission that it's okay to doubt. It's okay to question. It's okay to, to recognize that you really are a part of a snow globe and that's okay. And it's even a good snow globe and it probably gave you exactly what you needed. But then there comes a time where you have to break out of it. And that to me is spiritual growth. Uh, and if we're not growing and expanding, then I think we're calcifying 
And I just don't want, that's just not interesting to me. I do not want to calcify. I don't want to be a part of a closed system. I don't want to be a part of a system that fights to retain the snow globe status and keep everybody in the snow globe. I want to help people break out of their snow globes, even if it means uh, disruption and invitation and education, all that stuff. So that's enough for this week. I went longer than I thought I would. Uh, I hope this was helpful. Uh, uh, And um, next week, uh, we'll do the fourth part of this four-part series about bringing it all together and living a life, an integrated life that isn't done or perfect, but that is integrated. So grace and peace, my friends. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.